The Old Covenant reading for this morning is taken from the book of the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 42, beginning at verse 1. We'll be reading through verse 9 this morning. Uh, This is the beginning of the very famous servant servant songs in the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 42, beginning at verse 1. The word of the Lord. Behold my servant whom I uphold, My chosen in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth, and the coastlands wait for his law. Thus says God, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it, and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare, before they spring forth, I tell you, Of them. Here endeth the Old Covenant reading. The New Covenant reading is taken from the Gospel according to Matthew. Matthew chapter 12, beginning at verse 15. We'll be reading through verse 21 this morning. Actually, I'm going to step back and begin at verse 13. I I think connecting it with the passage we looked at last week uh, will help you understand God's word. Matthew chapter 12, beginning at verse 13, the word of our God. Then Jesus said to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out, and it was restored, healthy like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there. And many followed him, and he healed them all, and ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah, Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone Hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory. And in his name, the Gentiles will hope. Here endeth the New Covenant reading. Please keep your place here, as this will be the primary portion of God's word for our morning sermon. Who is the servant of the Lord. Uh, 
I have repeatedly uh, made a point, perhaps a bit for you uh, ad nauseum, about who the Son of God is. If you were to ask a, a Jew in 100 BC, who is the Son of God, uh, they almost certainly would have said, we are. Please note the collective plural. We are. After all, the Lord had said to Pharaoh, Israel is my son, my firstborn son. Let my people go. But what if we change that question just a little bit, and instead of asking that Jew in 100 BC, who is the son of God, we'd asked him, who is the servant of the Lord? I say with a high degree of certainty that that Jew almost certainly would have said, once again, we are. Uh, by the way, down to this very day, Jewish scholars, when they read the servant songs of the prophet Isaiah, uh, they almost exclusively apply them to Israel. Right? We collectively, as the people of God, and they would say as the Jewish people, are the servant of the Lord. And that's not entirely wrong. On the other hand, it's not entirely right. There are aspects of the servant songs of Isaiah which uniquely apply to the Messiah and to the Messiah alone. Uh, exhibit A is Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53 does not refer to Israel as a nation suffering redemptively for the sins of the world. It refers to Jesus Christ through his own giving up of his life on our behalf as a substitutionary atonement, redeeming us for God. And yet I say that the Jewish response is not entirely wrong because the people of God, that is you, are intended to be found in Christ, summed up in the Messiah, so that he has become your identity. Right? It is no longer I who live, Paul says, but Christ who lives in me. And because your identity is to be uh, found in Christ, and because you are called to be conformed into the likeness of Christ, by God's grace, the people of God are also identified and called the servant of the Lord in Scripture. In this morning's passage, Matthew returns to applying the servant of the Lord language, taken from Isaiah, back to Jesus. Um, in chapter 8, Matthew had alluded to how Jesus fulfills part of Isaiah 53 by bearing our diseases and taking our infirmities upon himself. In this morning's passage, Matthew quotes at length, in fact, this is the longest quotation uh, of Isaiah that Matthew has in his entire gospel. Matthew quotes at length from Isaiah 42, and he does so specifically in opposition to the Pharisees who would have fancied themselves as the Lord's most faithful servants. Uh, by the way, the contrast between the Pharisees who would have fancied themselves as the Lord's faithful servants, and Jesus Christ, who is the true and genuine and perfect servant of the Lord, is going to be an important theme from now throughout the next several chapters. Uh, we're going to look at this morning's passage using four titles for Jesus as the main headings. First, the servant king. Second, the Messiah. Third, the Good Shepherd, and fourth, the hope of the nations. Let me give those to you once again. First, the Servant King. Second, 
the Messiah, third, the Good Shepherd, and fourth, the hope of the nations. Now, last week we had seen how the Pharisees responded to Jesus healing a man with a withered arm on the Sabbath day. Um, you should ask yourself, put yourself back into these situations. How would you respond if you saw this poor man with a withered arm and Jesus simply with a word of his own command completely healed it like that so that his arms were both identical, both completely healthy? I mean, wouldn't you be in awe? And what the Pharisees do instead of being in awe, instead of taking mercy on this poor man and rejoicing with him that he'd been healed, they use him as a prop to try to condemn Jesus to the authorities. How then would Jesus respond in turn to the Pharisees? Right? He knows that the Pharisees want to destroy him. Well, look at verses 15 and 16 with me. <clears throat> Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there, and many followed him, and he healed them all and ordered them not to make him known. Uh, now Mark tells us that he withdrew to the sea, that is the Sea of Galilee, and also to the hill country. Uh, but we should not imagine that Jesus is withdrawing in order to be in private by himself or with just a small number of disciples, because we're told that large crowds follow him everywhere that he goes. Uh, Jesus wasn't leaving the people behind for a time of isolation. Uh, for the moment, Jesus is largely, not entirely, but largely leaving the Pharisees behind so that he can minister to those who are not trying to destroy him. Now, one of the worst things that Jesus could ever do to you, not, not just back then, but true right now, is to leave you to yourself. Those who are following Jesus are not yet doing so as full-fledged disciples. Nevertheless, they continue to hear the remarkable words of Jesus as he teaches and opens up mysteries that have been hidden since the foundation of the world. And everyone who has a physical ailment, and we're told in Mark, all those who are possessed by demons, Jesus healed them all. At the very least, the Pharisees are missing out on both those blessings. But actually, there's more. In their rebellion, they are being hardened by God in their own Sin against the Son of God, who's come to be the Savior of the world. The Pharisees have rejected Jesus, and so they cut themselves off from these remarkable blessings. Now, sadly, there are still many, many people in our own day who actually what they want from Jesus is for Jesus to leave them alone. Uh, they want Jesus to leave them alone so they can do their own thing without being reminded that they're living for a world that is passing away and living in rebellion against their creator. And so they want Jesus to leave them alone. But do you grasp what a horrible, horrible judgment that would be for Jesus to do that? Uh, let me say to you who are here this morning who have not yet fully and clearly committed yourself to Jesus, there are probably times in your life where you wish that you could just push all that Christianity stuff to the side, push Jesus to the side, because there's things you know you're not supposed to do as a Christian, like date a non-Christian. But, you know, she's really attractive, or he's really handsome and nice to me. And so you want to push Jesus aside for a moment. 
Beloved, please realize that one of the worst things that Jesus could do is to leave you to yourself. Matthew wants us to see not only what this meant for the Pharisees, that they were left for themselves, but he also wants us to see how Jesus' actions teach us some important things about Jesus himself. Look at verses 17 and 18 with me. We're told that Jesus did this, that is, going his quiet way, withdrawing, and also telling the people not to publicize what he was doing. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. So the first thing that Matthew wants us to see in this passage is that Jesus is the servant king. Now a Messiah who was merely a strong man, that is the Messiah that many Jewish people wanted, a strong man who was going to come in and throw off the Roman yoke, he would not have withdrawn. He would have put those Pharisees in their place right then and there. He would have been about power and glory being manifested in this world. But that's not what Jesus came to do. Jesus came to give his life for the life of the world. And yet Jesus did not want to prematurely bring about the climatic conflict that would lead to his crucifixion. Because Jesus still had work to do. Uh, He had teaching to give. He also needed to keep training his disciples so that they would be prepared to lead the church after his own death and resurrection. His time had not yet come. Jesus is the suffering servant whose quiet ministry continues until its victorious end. As Jeffrey Gibbs points out, it is not that Jesus simply wants to avoid confrontation. He is, after all, the one who heightened the confrontation in verses 1 through 4. And in the remainder of chapter 12, Jesus' words to his opponents are hardly non-confrontational. I think sometimes modern Christians, uh, we think that being nice to everybody and being kind of wimpish about how we approach the truth is to be like Jesus. If we read the Gospels, we discover that's not true at all. Continuing with Professor Gibbs, Jesus knew specifically that his Pharisaic opponents in Galilee had decided to do away with him. He also knew that he would control the time and place when on a human level, his enemies would succeed in carrying out their plan. Therefore, Jesus withdraws because the right time for him to die has not yet come. And as you read through the gospel according to John, you're going to see that phrase used repeatedly, right? Jesus does something, he withdraws, because his time had not yet come. Salvation will take place on his timeline, not on ours. Instead of the final confrontation, Jesus continues to show what the reign of God in this world looks like by teaching pure truth and healing all those who come to him. Now back in verse 15, Jesus tells us, I'm sorry, Matthew tells us, that Jesus ordered them not to make him known. 
Um, that may puzzle you a bit. Why is Jesus trying to damp down the publicity? Uh, this is that known by scholars as the messianic secret. That is, Jesus is drawing these big crowds and he's teaching them the truth. And then several times throughout the Gospels, particularly in the Gospel according to Mark, he says, don't make known what I'm doing. Well, he's not saying don't talk to your wife or your children. What Jesus is doing is trying to damp down just broad, wild publicity that's going to stir up people that something sensational is going on without them understanding who he is or his own mission. He wants to define what it means to be a, the Messiah on his own terms. He wants to continue to be able to go into all these small towns and preach to people. Uh, once People, are, by the way, they don't follow his guidance. And so uh, eventually Jesus has to like go out in the wilderness just because he can't get around in the small towns because the crowds are so great. So that's part of what he's doing, part of why he's seeking to limit the publicity that he's receiving but I want you to also grasp that this fits hand in glove with our Lord's desire to avoid a premature conflict with the authorities. right? And it makes clear that Jesus had come not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus is focused on doing what is good for the sheep. Let me say that again. Jesus is focused on doing what is good for the sheep, rather than trying to win excessively rapid acclaim for himself, a claim, of course, that he fully deserves. Jesus, after all, is the true king, not only over Israel, but over all creation. Nevertheless, he is the king who always seeks to do his father's will. I, I think that's one of those things that just blows me away when I think about the life of Jesus. Every moment of every day, Jesus loved the Lord his God with all his heart, all his soul, all his mind, and all his strength. He is the servant king who always seeks to serve the Father. By the way, I've discovered that when I say servant king, some people think that means he serves us. Well, in one sense, he does serve us. That's extraordinary. But he serves us because he's focused on serving his Father and doing his Father's will. Right? We are not the immediate cause of him being the servant. Now there's a beautiful truth hidden in this, the unusual term that Matthew uses here for servant. Um, instead of using the very common word that's used for servant, uh, Matthew uses a term that is often translated child or son. Right? Child or son. And that really fits because Jesus is both the servant of the Lord, according to Isaiah, but he's also the son of God. Now, this, this unusual term for servant is sometimes used to refer to servants elsewhere in the Bible. But where it is used, it has a, a really significant, profound difference from the ordinary way the term is used. Uh, John MacArthur points it out this way. When this term was used for a servant in secular Greek, it referred to an especially intimate and trusted servant. Uh, it is used in the Septuagint, that's the Greek translation, the ancient Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. It is used in the Septuagint in Genesis 24 to speak of Abraham's chief servant. It is used in Genesis 41.10 to speak of a royal servant. And it is used in Job 4 to speak of angels who are supernatural servants. And while we cannot automatically take all those meanings and import them here into 
Matthew. Uh, that's known as illegitimate totality transfer. Um, not that you need to know that. Interestingly enough, here all those nuances seem to apply. They fit with this passage. God is saying that Jesus is his trusted, intimate servant, the chief servant, the royal servant, the servant who is especially beloved. And of course, that becomes explicit in the rest of the passage. This is the first thing that Matthew wants us to grasp. Jesus is the servant king par excellence. Indeed, the Lord says of his servant king that he is my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. The second thing that Matthew wants to remind us of is that Jesus is the Messiah. Now, in one sense, those titles, servant king and Messiah, are almost interchangeable. right? So, so don't make a, a radical break between the two of them in your thinking. Yet Matthew is drawing our attention to the technical definition of the Messiah as the one anointed by God with the Holy Spirit. The Father declares that Jesus is my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I want you to make sure you see the contrast between God's view of Jesus and the Pharisees' view of Jesus. The Pharisees want to destroy Jesus, but Almighty God looks down and says, that's the one with whom my soul is well pleased, my beloved. And then the Lord immediately adds, I will put my spirit upon him. That is, Jesus, according to Isaiah, and of course has already been fulfilled, will be the Messiah, the uniquely anointed one. Right now, God has anointed other people in Israel's history, right? Uh, priests and kings both get anointed in Israel. But Jesus is the one who's anointed with the fullness of the Spirit without any measure. Now, it turns out that Matthew says remarkably little about the Holy Spirit. But what he says is profoundly important. First, Jesus is conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit. Second, John the Baptist, when he's announcing the coming of Jesus, says that the one after me is going to baptize, not just with water, but with the Spirit and with fire. Third, in our Lord's baptism, the Spirit descends upon Jesus in the form of a dove, and the Father pronounces these very words from Isaiah 42. This is my beloved Son, in whom, or with whom, I am well pleased. Fourth, this is an interesting one. We're told it's the Holy Spirit that leads Jesus out in the wilderness to be tempted. See, part of Christ's call as the Messiah is to live the life that we should have lived and to die the death that we should have died. And the Holy Spirit, therefore, drives Jesus out in the wilderness to be tempted in our place where he will overcome Satan directly. And fifth, Jesus encouraged his disciples that they would not need to be afraid or anxious when they were turned over to the courts or dragged before governors, for the Holy Spirit would give them the words to say and speak through them to the glory of God. Yet if the apostles received the anointing of the Holy Spirit in part for their very important work, Jesus is the one who receives the Holy Spirit without measure from the Father. The man Christ Jesus conducts his ministry in step with and in the power of the Holy Spirit. 
I want to pause on that for a moment because I've discovered that many North American Protestants tend to naturally think of Jesus as God first. And we don't pay enough attention to the fact that Jesus is also fully man. And then when you read through the Gospels, what you're going to see is, is sometimes, not that common actually, but sometimes the divinity of Jesus communicates to the human nature of Jesus what's going on. But often it's the Holy Spirit. That is, the man Christ Jesus conducts his ministry in the power and according to the will of the Holy Spirit to the glory of his Father. Well, that's the relationship Jesus has towards his Father. But what is his relationship towards us? I've titled this section, Jesus is the Good Shepherd. Look at verses 19 and 20 with me. Speaking of Jesus, he will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory. Let me ask this question again. Who is the servant of the Lord? When we read Isaiah 42, in its original context, we see there are some pointers that suggest it's the people of God and others that make clear it must be a single person, the Messiah. Verses 19 and 20 clearly refer to a single individual. Jesus is the one who will not quarrel or cry aloud. Jesus is the one who will neither break a bruised reed nor snuff out a smoldering wick. Nevertheless, since we are called to become like Jesus, these verses do have something to teach us about how we ought to live in this world, how we are to engage both with our adversaries and with those who are weak or hurting. As the Apostle Paul will later tell Timothy, the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome. Do you see that's just like Jesus? The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness, just like Jesus. See, gentleness is not a mark of weakness. I'm going to say that particularly to you young men who get confused at this point. Gentleness is not a mark of weakness, but of Christ-like strength. Nevertheless, Matthew's focus is not on our imitation of Christ, but on Christ himself. Indeed, Christ has the strength to do something that we so desperately need in our world. Christ has the strength to bring justice to victory. He also has the strength to heal the brokenhearted. First, we're told that Jesus uses his gentle strength to bring justice to victory. Um, if you have the time, go back and look at this passage and think about justice. Because if you think in the original context of Isaiah, earlier on we're told that he's going to proclaim justice to the Gentiles, that is the word of God. Right? The word of God is going to come to the Gentiles because of Jesus and what he does. Justice can also be, this, this term can be judgment. And Jesus does bring judgment for those who rebel against him. He brings a crisis into this world. But in this context, the positive meaning is very much warranted. 
He's bringing justice in the sense of bringing his own saving righteousness in order to redeem us and to redeem the world. And Christ's work is not only forensic, that is, it's not only a legal verdict. Uh, We can see this in the fact that in addition to declaring that sins are forgiven, Jesus continues on with his work of miraculous healing. Those are pointers. Pointers to the fact that part of Christ's work of redeeming the world is new creation. Making things the way they were supposed to be before. Putting the world to rights. We also see that in terms of him casting out the demons. Christ's work of putting the world to right is about new creation, new creation that flows from his own death and resurrection. But second, Jesus uses his gentle strength to bind up the brokenhearted. You know, we're so used to this this language, we we can think it's natural. Everybody would have wanted to do that. Uh, But it's not natural. It's not the way that people apart from Christianity actually think. Uh, R.T. France says it well. A reed was used for measuring and for support. Uh, Once its straightness is lost by bending or cracking, it is of no further use. And a strip of linen cloth could be used as a lamp wick, but if it smokes, it is of no use for giving light, and it is simply a source of pollution. Common sense would demand that both be replaced, the reed would be snapped and discarded or burned, and the wick extinguished. Sadly, the way that we quite reasonably treat bruised reeds and smoldering wicks is the way that the Pharisees were treating human beings. And let it be said, not just the Pharisees. Pharisees treated their fellow Jews who they determined couldn't do anything for them because they were weak or not educated or so on, like they were discarded. I mean, they were disposable. They could just be discarded, pushed to the side, right? The unwashed masses who don't know the law like we do. And as I say, before we rush to judge the Pharisees, we ought to realize something. A common failing of Western culture is to treat people's value as though it's based on their economic output, right? Those who have a lot of skills, who can produce things, they're really valuable. We tend to do that in the West instead of valuing people because they're created in the image of God, right? The the, the least, most bruised, most incapable person you've ever met is an image bearer of the living God and needs to be treated with respect and decency. Now think back to the immediate pa- immediately preceding passage. There was a man in the synagogue with a withered arm. Instead of taking compassion on this man, the Pharisees simply tried to use him as a prop to entrap Jesus. That's not the way you should treat bruised human beings. But I ask, is that the way that you treat the weak and vulnerable? Well, um, you're well educated. And let's be honest, you're not going to do anything quite this crass. But do we treat the weak and the vulnerable with indifference simply because they cannot do anything for us? Well, that's something you need to wrestle with, and so do I. 
Because image bearers of the living God ought not to be treated with indifference. Let it be clearly said, this is not the way that Jesus treats them. Jesus, even though he knew it was going to result in his own condemnation, looked upon the man with the withered arm with compassion, and he healed him. Now, this becomes really good news for us when we realize that before God, we are all broken and bruised. There are no people put together before the living God. When we realize that we are the broken and bruised, and Jesus doesn't break us or snuff us out as smoldering wicks. Jesus comes to us as our good shepherd, the good shepherd who cares for us and gives his life for his sheep. Is that the way you think about Jesus? You know, it's very important that you think rightly about Jesus. If you think wrong about Jesus, you're going to get everything else of significant wrong, significance wrong in your life. Uh, think about um, the Middle Ages, the early Middle Ages and right through to today. Uh, there developed a whole series of Marian devotions, that is, religious practices that sought to bring your request to God by going through Mary as an intercessor. Why did that happen? It didn't happen because of a misunderstanding about Mary. It happened because of a misunderstanding about Jesus. People started to think of Jesus as the severe judge. And if you go to Jesus with your problems, he's going to rebuke you. But if you go to Mary, well, you know, Jesus, he can't resist his mother if his mother asks for something. And Mary's tender toward you, kind toward you, cares about you in your weakness. But do you see that forgetting the, the issues about whether or not Mary can intercede for you at all, that's to fundamentally misunderstand who Jesus is. Jesus is the tender Savior who loves you, who loves you so much he gave his life for you. He is the good shepherd who will care for you. And therefore you can approach him with boldness and confidence. The fundamental problem about so much Marian devotion is not that it misrepresents Mary, but that it misrepresents Jesus. Now this evening we're going to be reminded that Jesus places radical demands upon us as his followers. We must put loyalty to Jesus above loyalty to our beloved family members, above getting ahead at work, above all our possessions. Jesus makes radical demands on us. Um, if you don't understand who Jesus is, that's going to seem like really bad news. In principle, we must be prepared to abandon everything else that we might cling to Christ. Uh, that call would appear to be a call to voluntarily submit to tyranny until we grasp the one, what the one who's calling us is like. Beloved, Jesus is the good shepherd who causes us to lie down in green pastures. He is the good shepherd who leads us beside still waters. He is the good shepherd who restores our soul. He is the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. Here's the truth. You are going to serve somebody. Even if you serve yourself, you're going to be serving other people. You are going to serve somebody. So you better make sure that you're serving the right person. See, this sort of service and loyalty to anyone else 
including yourself, anyone else other than Jesus is to enter into one of the worst types of tyranny possible. But if you belong like this to Jesus Christ, well, that's true freedom and true joy. Please make sure this very day that you are serving the right master because Jesus is the servant king, Jesus is the Messiah, and Jesus is the good shepherd. Uh, This is good news, but it does raise a significant question if you just think about this passage. Uh, Jesus, after all, is withdrawing from the religious leaders, going to the Sea of Galilee, going up into the hills. Is Matthew letting us know that Jesus is only going to save a tiny remnant of people. Most people are going to be condemned. The mission of Jesus is going to be glorious, but only for a tiny group of people. And the answer to that is absolutely not. Uh, I I, um, have called this uh, section in verse 21. Let me read verse 21 to you first. In his name, the Gentiles will hope. And you might have noticed I didn't use the word Gentiles in in my my title here. I've called this section, um, In Him the Nations Will Hope. Uh, There's a little bit of confusion here that is inescapable because the Greek word that's translated Gentiles is also translated nations. Very same word. And so the fact that we translate the same word two different ways can confuse us a bit. Uh, Don't panic because you realize from a Jewish standpoint All the other nations are, by definition, Gentiles. But the reason why I talk about nations here is I think it actually includes Israel and not just the Gentiles. See, the contrast here is not so much between Jew and Gentile. It's between this small group of people and those whom God has made the promise to Abraham that in him all the peoples of the earth shall be blessed After all, the crowds that are following Jesus are mostly made up of Jews. And what Isaiah is saying, and Matthew is picking up on it here, is don't be confused by the opposition to Jesus to think that Jesus is only going to make a little dent in the world. Don't you understand that he's going to fulfill the promises that God has made to Abraham, that in his seed, all the people groups of the earth shall be blessed. In spite of the opposition... And the apparently modest beginnings, Jesus is the focal point of all of human history. And in him, the nations will hope. Which leaves us with one final and vital question to ask this morning. Is he the one in whom you are hoping? Not just the nations, but you. Are you finding your hope for this life and for the life to come in Christ and in Christ alone. Jesus is the one perfect servant of the Lord whom Isaiah prophesied about. And as I mentioned, there are some aspects of his work, such as dying for the sins of the world, that Jesus accomplishes all by himself. Nevertheless, God's plan is not that you would admire Christ from a distance. I think some of you are actually afraid to get close to Christ. God's plan is not that you would admire Christ from a distance, but rather that you'd be found in him, that your identity would be caught up in him, and that by God's grace you'd be conformed into his likeness, that you would be like Jesus Christ. And so if you are identified 
with Jesus this morning because by God's grace you are trusting in Christ and in Christ alone for your salvation. If you are for what Jesus is for and against what Jesus is against, that is, you're a self-conscious disciple seeking to follow him, that his will would be done in your life. If your only hope in life and in death is that you are not your own, but you belong body and soul to your faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, then, beloved, you too have become a member of the household of faith, which is also the servant of the Lord. Praise be to God. Amen.